We are going to revisit cannabis popularity and the fact that it is legal. There are many places where if you are a purchaser of cannabis, you can buy it. Is it economical to buy it from a government store or are people still buying it from whoever they got it from before it became legal? Well, Gary McKenna is a reporter with the Tri-City News and has written about this and joins us on the line. Gary, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Good morning. So what did you find as far as the prices, the price of cannabis, depending on where you get it? Well, I, I think the main bullet point here is that the price of, of legal marijuana compared to getting it from illegal sources, uh, you're paying a lot more um, on the legal side. Uh, I, the StatsCan data that, that came out this week shows that uh, across Canada, if you, um, you know, the average uh, dollar per gram is about... if you're buying it in a a sanctioned shop uh, and about $6 per gram uh, if you're buying it illegally, which is about a, you know, you're paying basically 72% more uh, to purchase legal marijuana than than you would uh, illegal marijuana. And that that range uh, depends also on the province. Uh, So there's, there's a pretty wide gap in that percentage difference depending on where you're you're buying from. Uh, absolutely. And I suppose that was kind of expected when we first learned about legalization and the fact that it was going to be uh, government stores, uh, that it would be a bit more expensive. I mean, I, I, I suppose, yeah, I think, uh, you know, although one of the goals uh, of this, this change was to, was to eliminate the black market and, uh, you know, we haven't really seen that at all. If anything, uh, legal marijuana has gotten more expensive, while the illegal um, market has gotten cheaper. Actually, since over the last five quarters, which is is what the the StatsCan data shows. Which is an interesting finding because, again, we talked to people even before it was legalized and asked people who use cannabis and who purchase cannabis uh, if they would go to the government model. And a lot of the answers at the time were, well, sure, if it's price, if the price is uh, comparable to what it is where you're getting it now, and also the quality. I know a lot of people have said that they prefer wherever they were purchasing it before, they know what they were getting, and it was what they wanted compared to the quality of the government stores. Well, it's it's funny. uh, you know, I've got a lot of messages from people uh, over the last couple of days since the story uh, was posted where they say, well, not only is it is it cheaper, it's it's generally better and that the stuff that you get in, in government stores is, is uh, I guess, not exactly the, the top shelf quality that, that maybe people were getting from from their their from the black market. Uh, yeah, which which makes sense too. Why would somebody switch if they they're with the product that they know and that they like, and it's cheaper and better? It seems like a bit of yeah. a no brainer. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, any other numbers from Stats Canada as far as uh, what you looked at uh, the numbers and and where people are buying their marijuana? Well, I mean, I, I think just the the gap, you know, uh, from province to province. So in BC, we're actually a bit. Uh, the, the percentage between uh, illegal and, and legal is, is I mean, that gap is, is probably one of the closest. Quebec is only only is the only one with a, a shorter percentage difference. So in BC, uh, the dollar per gram is about five dollars and ninety five cents on the illegal market and nine dollars and thirty two cents uh, on the legal market. So you're paying about fifty. 57% more legally, uh, which sounds like a lot, but if you go to the Maritimes, a uh, province like New Brunswick, 
it's a, it's about 132 percent more you're paying for for legal marijuana compared compared to illegal marijuana. So so it really does depend on on whereabouts, uh, you know, which part of the country you're buying in. So you know, maybe in a place like BC where there was this uh, a pretty thriving black market before legalization. You you see maybe there's this you know they're still pretty pretty competitive and uh, and uh, a big part of the market share. Absolutely, that's a huge number in the Maritimes. Yes, yeah, and I mean it's it's uh, you know I mean it's it's much higher than than the the Canadian average. You, across Canada as a whole, you pay about seventy two percent more. Uh, for legal marijuana compared to illegal marijuana last year, so uh, which which is interesting too. But people must still be purchasing it; uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have the stores and the dispensaries and such still operating. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, and there's you know stats can I didn't get into this much with in my my story, but uh, they found some some differences between between men and women uh, that men tend to buy. Uh, illegally more often than women and that there was you know there is still uh uh yeah i mean there's there's obviously still people going uh going to these these legal uh, sanctioned shops and i suppose you know i mean i'm not an economist but i think if you you know uh i think it's safe to assume that if somebody's you know growing marijuana in their basement and selling it out of their car they might have different overhead costs than you would see for someone who is uh you know, gone through the the legal process and has acquired a license and paid the fees and is selling it through a a retail space and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's it's perhaps not too surprising that there's this gap, but it is interesting that the gap continues to grow between the legal and illegal market. Uh, Absolutely, because like you said, the whole one of the reasons uh, that uh, legalizing it or one of the side effects we were told of legalizing it was that it would get rid of the black market. Exactly. And so that that has definitely not happened. And so, you know, I'm not sure what what kind of uh, changes, you know, there's been some discussion. I mean, this is not a new trend. I mean, this every every quarter, these these numbers come out and it just seems like the, this gap continues to grow. And so, you know, uh, at what point do do changes need to be made to, to try and bring these costs more in line? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, who knows if we're if we're this far in and the gap is still that big, and especially as you said in other parts of the country, it's uh, difficult to say or interesting to think. Well, what would what could they possibly do, or what could be done to lessen the gap? Well, yeah, and and you've heard some people talking about you know uh, changing the, the sort of the tax scheme around it that could maybe make it a bit more uh, competitive. But there's also um, you know, it's it's still rolling out. You know, so the the legal production hasn't maybe hit that uh, a, a point where we're going to see you know prices come down if there's not the, the same level of competition. Maybe it, you know, it's it's hard to say. Um, most of this data they get through um, sort of crowdsourcing too. That's another thing that needs to be considered. So they you know these are people that are volunteering to 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 tell StatCan where you know, how, what they're paying, where they're getting it and talking about the quality. And so this last quarter, they had about 248 submissions. And so, you know, you do have to consider that when you look at these, the, these numbers is that how representative is it, but you know, this is a baseline they followed since uh, the beginning. And so, you know, compared, you know, quarter to quarter comparisons, you know, are pretty, are, are pretty fair. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, interesting numbers. Uh, And Gary, thanks for uh, writing the piece and for joining us here today to talk about it. Uh, Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, maybe you have used Uber or Lyft. You've taken a ride in Metro Vancouver because, as you've heard on the news, the ride-sharing apps are now active in this region. Ian Tostenson is joining me now, President and CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. I have a pleasure, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Well, this is pretty exciting. I um, I was kind of chuckling this morning when I thought about yesterday. And uh, I know you love competition, and so do I. And <laughs> Lyft had a press conference at 8 o'clock. And the day before, Uber had announced that they would be operating at 11 a.m. And you know what? They both were out there at about 11.35 yesterday morning competing ferociously for customers. And I think that's just great. So... Um, <laughs> We've got we've got some uh, some competition in transportation, and I think people are having a lot of fun with that. For judging from what I saw on Twitter this morning from all the people last night that were posting. Uh, absolutely. So I took a Lyft ride yesterday. I was uh, excited to to jump on and take advantage of the fact that it was uh, available. So the driver that I got had both the Lyft and Uber. He was a driver for both. And I asked him, oh, that's interesting. Which, And he said, yeah, he said, I, I, I think he said he preferred Lyft, but he was doing both of them because he had originally, he'd been a taxi driver before. He worked in the film industry, so he already had his class four. The reason he was doing both, though, was because the promotions that they have going for people, that if you get a certain amount of rides you get a bonus and he said if he can make the bonus he's going to make about a thousand dollars or he's going to recoup then his costs and he can make about a thousand dollars in the bonus yeah and i think he raised a good point because you know certainly one of the troubling areas continues to be how these two uh, wonderful companies can populate drivers because of the class four license and the and and the difficult it's not difficult it's the time and money to get it and so this guy's great so i think what's happened now is that because the service is available, so many more people are going to think, you know what, uh, there's an incentive. It's worth me going to get my class four. I'm encouraging people to do that because the more drivers we have, the the, the faster we'll get expansion uh, service throughout Metro Vancouver and more, and just as importantly, other parts of, B- of BC. So um, I think this is going to help that. I know that ICBC put out some stats and there were like 250 people got a class four in September and October. It was, it's not like big numbers. And it's tough for the industry, for the uh, the two companies to work with this, but um, I'm confident that's going to um, increase rapidly. And of course, we're going to keep talking to the government about is there different ways of approaching that. Once uh, I think once the door in the crack is open here, I think the government's going to continue to um, hopefully work with us on innovation. Uh, did things roll out the way you were hoping? Certainly, from my point of view. Um, I met some guys over in North Vancouver last night on the way home for a glass of wine, and I went, oh, and I went, oh, I could actually take an Uber in North Vancouver from where I was to my house. I thought, that is so cool. Of course, I only had a glass of wine, so it was good. But um, that they were just like going crazy, these guys, and they said they were talking like, oh, my God, let's just go get an Uber just for the sake of going around the corner and see what it feels like. Because uh, Lyft. So the difference right now is that Uber is expanded uh, in Metro Vancouver, on a wider uh, ge- on wider geographics than Lyft, and so Lyft has contained itself to Vancouver, but uh, Uber is operating in uh, going from memory now, but New Westminster and Burnaby, and the Tri Cities, and uh, of course then it comes down to what is going on the real story in Surrey, 
And uh, so for your listeners, what happened was um, the mayor has stated he doesn't want ride sharing in Surrey. It looks like it's kind of interesting, right? Because the councillors are going, well, we don't know that was his decision, not ours. And meanwhile, Uber was operating, and there was a letter sent by the mayor saying, cease and desist, don't do this. But here's um, the deal is that Surrey can't prevent them from operating. So good on Uber for uh, continuing on in Surrey. Um, they will eventually have to have a license in Surrey, but at this point, um, the, the Surrey can't preclude them from operating that way. So it looks like, and I don't know this, uh, but I, I would I would think that Uber will continue to operate in Surrey because they're allowed to, according to the provincial regulations. Uh, because that was the the confusion in that yesterday, uh, Michael Van Hemmen with Uber was on the Simi Sarah show. My, he was talking with Mike Smith and that came up and he said, no, we're operating in Surrey. It's it's absolutely fine. And Mike asked him how, being that Surrey had, the mayor had been so opposed. And he said, well, exactly that. There's nothing that stops us at this point. But it was after that, that this cease and desist letter came out. So is it your understanding then that Uber will ignore that letter? Well, I, I think they'll just continue to operate. Versus, I think they're not ignoring the letter, but I think, I think they feel very um, confident. And it looks, from my point of view, that they're totally right that the provincial regulation trumps the ability for a municipality to block ride sharing. Now, they are going to uh, have to have a, 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 a operating license in Surrey when they get sorted out. But what a lot of mayors have done is said, you know what, we're not there yet. We haven't figured it out. So. You guys, like in North Vancouver, they said, you go ahead and operate, we'll catch up to you, which I think is really awesome. And I think Tri-Cities said the same way. Actually, Tri-Cities do have a fee, but they're, they're saying, you know what, uh, we know we're a little bit behind, we know the consumer wants this, and so you guys go ahead. And these guys are good for it. They'll, they'll, they'll circle back and get their licenses. But in the meantime, um, you know, the public is demanding this um, ahead of the politicians. And, you know, Joe, as you know, I mean, it's, Surrey is just about playing to the optics of the taxi industry. It's a sort of last holdout. And uh, I'm not so sure that uh, the council is united in this. In fact, I know they're not. And they're going to try to talk about it next week. But anyways, I mean, uh, good for Uber. They're not doing anything illegal. They're they're operating because they've been told they can operate. And so uh, I think that's great because I just think for Surrey to sort of take this position and not provide. Uh, there's a lot of people that um, I read and said that they're loving their um, uh, Uber in Surrey yesterday and are loving the value or loving the fact they could get into Vancouver and back. And there was some gentleman just on the news this morning uh, on Global News talking about, and I suspect he probably came from Surrey, he said it took him 80, a ride from Surrey to the airport was $80, and when he got home he could get uh, ride-sharing, it was $40, and so he was, like, thrilled. So there's a lot of value, there's a lot of service, uh, there's going to be no question for these companies, uh, it's going to be a little bit bumpy at times as they... You know, you can imagine turning on an app and having all these hundreds of drivers and needing more drivers to provide the service. But, you know, knowing these guys, both these companies, um, you know, when they say they're going to operate in an area, you know, they're coming with a sense of confidence. They want to deliver on that brand promise that they have. And um, because ultimately it's about the experience that you and I have when you get in, like you had yesterday morning, Lyft when you get in the car. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so do you think that will be worked out? Because even the driver yesterday said, so as it is now, Vancouver is the only one that has the actual license. So it's 100 bucks for the operating yeah. license. And he said that they had added a fee on it. It was a 10 cent fee or something that they had added to each ride to pay for that. Uh, will the, Is it your sense then that the mayors are, are still working on this kind of regional license? So it's not like a piecemeal license that if you're a driver, you have to have one in Burnaby, you have to have one in Vancouver and wherever you are operating? Yeah, so there is a, 
Uh, I sit in the Small Business Roundtable in BC, and, and the reason I say that is because we develop, help the government develop a single business license for Metro Vancouver. So if you're um, applying to trade, you don't need a business license, you're, you're a plumber, and you want to go across m- boundaries, you just need one license. And so that's the model. And the mayors have said, uh, as it's being um, led by the mayor in New Westminster, that they hope to have a framework in early February that they the mayors can take back to their councils for approval. So I don't, I don't see any issues there. I mean, I'm sure Surrey's going to have an issue, but apart from that, I think everybody else is on board and get on with this as quick as possible. So in the meantime, though, as I said, um, the companies can operate if they can, they can populate their apps with the drivers. Um, and again, you know, look to your listeners, if you want to go out and make some part-time money and have some fun, um, this is a great little uh, side gig. Um, go get a license, and the more drivers we have, the more we're going to see expanded service. Uh, did you ever get your class four? No, I failed. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right, this is the first time I've publicly come out and said this. I, 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 I got halfway through how to drive a bus. That's really what it's about, mm-hmm. the manual. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm just going to go write it, and I didn't get through it. So I am going to do it, though. Uh, my son and I are going to do it together. And uh, he's actually got it. He's applying to become a, a fireman, and so he's got a bunch of licenses. And he actually went to Red Class Four, and like he drives air brakes and all this kind of stuff, and he failed it. And he said, "I don't know anything about buses. Like, I'm talking about cars here." So we're going this week. I'll let I'll keep you informed as to how I do, but I am going to do it. I just think it would be uh, a lot of fun to drive people. Uh, for me, it would really be more about just talking to them about their experience, about ride sharing. After you know all the conversations that we've had and the years we've waited, just to experience people how excited they are you know it's just it's that's pretty cool i mean yesterday was history in british columbia uh was made and it's a lot of people like the media and yourself that really pulled together to keep the pressure on the government to make this happen so yahoo <laughs> yeah and i kind of i felt a bit bad for my driver yesterday because i was just peppering him with questions because i was so interested in why he was a driver how he got involved did he have a class for and uh, the poor guy did have a ton of questions hopefully that won't uh, affect my uh, rider rating but i, I it's yeah. interesting right we want to <laughs> yeah, know Joel, how no, people no, are involved <laughs> she's the lady with the microphone she's yeah. asking me questions she won't <laughs> shut up the entire ride <laughs> but it was he um he sounded like he was generally really positive about his uh, first day in the job. Oh, he loved it. He said it was great, and and he was just, it was something he was just doing like many people. He was just doing it part time, a few hours here yeah. and there, and and he had driven somebody. You mentioned to the airport. He had driven somebody. He said it had been nonstop all day, and he had driven somebody who was close to the Surrey Langley border and taken them to the airport. And at Lyft was offering a, a deal for the first uh, so many rides, but the, this person got a trip to the airport from Surrey Langley for twenty six dollars, and he said they were over the wow. moon that it was such a great deal. Well, we had uh, uh, hundreds of, of um, reservations canceled between Christmas and New Year's because people said, you know what, I thought it was going to be here. It's not, so that we're not going to have to deal with that anymore. And um, someone said last night, they said, oh, I'm going downtown. I can get this. And I go, oh, my God, my life has changed. Like, <laughs> I think that it's going to take a while for people to really real, to embrace this. Um, I think people should download both apps, uh, Lyft and Uber, um, for no other reason than they have a slightly different experience, but they're, they're operating in slightly different areas. And I think, um, you know, um, the, the arguments about, oh, the pay and stuff, this, these are part-time jobs and people are having fun with them, as you sort of say. So go out and, uh, and make some extra money. And um, people aren't building careers on becoming Uber drivers. They're, they're doing this to, to serve the public and make a few extra bucks. So 
Boy, I tell you, we're, we're later than we thought. We thought before Christmas, right, Jill? But we got it. 2020. <laughs> all right. Well, good luck on getting your class four. And sorry for uh, outing you today about the fact uh, that you right. failed the test. Uh, but it has a high fail rate, so don't feel bad about that. Okay. Um, we'll, I will let you know when I pass it, okay? <laughs> all right. Sounds good. We will leave it there. Ian, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Jill. Well, you probably heard the phrase double criminality more in this past week than you've ever heard it before, because that is at the heart of the Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing, which is taking place in Vancouver. The first part of the hearing has already taken place. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about where things stand and where things go from here is Ian Young, Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, I heard you talking to Mike Smith about this, uh, and I thought it was it was great to kind of get a recap and to take a look at what we've seen. So at this point, where are we with the hearing and the kind of the first part of the hearing completed? Yeah, well, this is going to be a long process. The first phase of the hearing is over. This was the, the phase you said that was uh, devoted to double criminality. Um, Among's lawyers want uh, her to be released immediately on the basis of this, on the basis that supposedly um, uh, the case against her fails the test of double criminality, which requires that the charges against her constitute a crime in Canada, have constituted a crime in Canada if she committed them here. But this is going to go on for a long time, you know. I mean, assuming that the judge does not throw the case out immediately, um, you, we've got hearings continuing up until up until November at, at least. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a very long process. Uh, which, and I guess there is the chance then at this point, uh, is there or how remote do you think the possibility is that the judge could come back and say, yes, this is tossed out? Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to exactly predict, but I, I would just say that, um, you know, um, only 1% of extradition cases are denied. Um, you know, the, the, I think that both sides mounted some pretty good good arguments um, uh, at this week's hearings. But it would be surprising, let's put it that way, if, if, um, if Heather Holmes, Justice Heather Holmes, decided just to release Ms. Mung on the basis of, of this week's arguments. She was, um, you know, she, the judge was, you know, she was questioning very strongly uh, both sides. And she actually praised both, both uh, sets of lawyers and said that their submissions were both superb. So I don't think that this is going to be, you know, um, a very easy, clear-cut thing. Uh, if she was going to release Ms. Mung, that would really be a bombshell. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, where does it go from here then as far as a reserve decision on this first phase of the trial? Yeah, well, I mean, um, uh, she, uh, Justice Holmes didn't say when she, uh, she might issue a decision, um, but we do have more hearings scheduled um, um, in April. So I think that um, she, she would probably issue something before then, before, <laughs> if she's decided that she wants to throw it out. Um, she'd probably uh, issue it before then, before going on to other phases of the of the uh, extradition hearing. Um, the other phases um, uh, also address really uh, interesting, complex issues about, um, you know, was was Ms. Mung subjected to an abusive process? And there's some really interesting uh, uh, subjects there. And do you think it will come down to that? Because it's certainly that is the the other side of it, in that there's the the charge of did is what she's accused of doing a crime in Canada is is it a crime but then also how was she handled be it at, at the airport when she was questioned and and is that almost 
overshadowing the, the actual charge itself in the hand in that uh, we're questioning how the whole process was that led to her arrest. Um, look, I think that the, the defence will focus very strongly on um, on the issue of abusive process because there are some um, um, some big questions about the way she was handled. It was ordered, um, you know, by the judge who ordered that she be arrested that she'd be arrested immediately. But that didn't actually happen. What happened is she got off the plane. I think she was basically questioned. It was took three hours. They, they took away her phone. These are border officers. Took away her phone. They asked her questions about Iran. They asked her all sorts of things that are related to the US case against her. And then the RCMP stepped in and arrested her after they had secured her mobile devices after... You know, they'd bagged up her, her computer and her phone. And so the proposition that, that her lawyers are, are offering is that, you know, it, this was actually an information-gathering exercise. This was an evidence-gathering exercise. And, and, and Ms Mung was, you know, denied process by not being arrested immediately. She stepped off the plane. She could have lawyered up on the spot, you know, refused to hand over her phones, all those sort of things. So, you know, that, that, that's a very... A compelling sort of um, a case from a journalist's point of view to hear, you know, that someone's being um, uh, uh, treated uh, not in accordance with the way that a judge asked her to be treated. So, you know, that's a very interesting phase of the trial. Uh, and what do you take on uh, on Meng Wanzhou's uh, kind of attitude and, and how it's changed? If we go back to when she was first released, uh, remember the the footage, and rightly so. I mean, she had cameras in her face. There were mm. people staked out at the courthouse, and, and she didn't want anything to do with them. Whereas uh, seeing her walk into court waving uh, this this calm, confident person, there's a, such a change in her, uh, how she's carrying herself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely part of a strategy. And that's, I think, pr- probably for... Um, for Chinese uh, consumption rather than for domestic Canadian consumption. I think the, it, what she's showing is that she um, doesn't want to be portrayed as a victim or someone who's hiding in any way. You probably remember that back in her bail hearing, she was wearing a green prison tracksuit. After that, uh, the next set of hearings, she was wearing, you know, what looked like really casual streetwear. She was wearing, you know, <laughs> you know leggings and, and, and hoodies and big woolly hats. You know, she just looked like a student. But then for the mid-phase of the hearings last year, she started turning out in, in designer outfits, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of clothes, you know, um, you know Jimmy Choo high heels with crystals all over them. She looked like a superstar in the middle of the year. And she's sort of... I, I think what she's trying to do is to depict herself as looking like someone who is in charge, someone who is not frightened and someone who is not intimidated. And she, I think she's pulled it off because she... She looks quite confident, walks into trial, says hello to people, you know, waves at the journalist. She's, um, you know, she doesn't look like she's anyone's fool. Hmm. Uh, and you mentioned, too, the, uh, the, the consumption of the, the story or the, the coverage of the story. How is it being portrayed? Because we also had the issue of the, the paid protesters, the, the fake protesters outside of court. How is it being portrayed in China? Oh, I think it's fair to say that certainly in state media it is being portrayed very, very differently. Um, you know, the... Let's go to the issue of the fake protesters, for instance. I think most domestic media here in, in Vancouver looked at that and it became instantly obvious that something was fishy because these kids did not look like protesters. Um, they had identical signs and, you know, their story sort of fell apart under very faint questioning. They had no idea what was going on and it turns out that, you know, some of them were being paid. On the other hand, 
CCTV, which is the big Chinese state broadcaster, use them in the background of their story. Look at these protesters. Here are local Canadian people out demonstrating their support for Ms Meng, petitioning for her to be released. So, you know, it's a very different, uh, a very different scenario. Um, you know, I think it's, there is interest in, in China, uh, from state media at least, in depicting this case as a, um, as a clear political fabrication, like a victimisation of Ms Meng um, uh, by, by Donald Trump, I guess, is, 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 is what it boils down to. And not that the case, not that there's been mention of the Canadians that are still being held in China, but obviously there is a huge connection there. The the two uh, Michaels who were taken into custody, who have been held uh, there, would you? Do you think it's too much to say that their future really depends on what happens in this case? I don't think that's too much at all. I think absolutely their future hinges on what happens to Ms. Meng. Um, you know. It, it, I think that outside of China, it's, there's a, a quite a reasonable um, understanding that they are hostages, that they were taken um, prisoner in retaliation for what happens to Ms. Meng, and now they're just bargaining chips. Um, no, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Uh, so what do you think, what do you see happening next? As you said, uh, this is uh, scheduled to go all the way to November, uh, more dates in, in April. Is it a wait to, and then see what the judge does next? Yeah, we, we do have um, a minor hearing scheduled in March, which is just sort of a, a case conference. But I um, I think we will hear from the judge sometime, probably before before April. Um, it'll probably be a written decision. She's a very thoughtful person. Um, uh, and I, uh, you know, if I had to put money down, I'd say yes, we're going to be continuing in April, and we're going to start hearing things about um, about the abusive process and um, whether or not this was a political prosecution and stuff like that. It, you know, we've got hearings scheduled, as I said, all the way through to November. But that doesn't mean that's it, because it could go beyond that, and there could be an appeal, and it could last for years. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Ian, thank you again so much. Uh, great to chat with you this morning. No worries. Thank you, Jill. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, as of today in Wuhan, China, the ban is in place. This is a ban on the use of vehicles downtown as they try to restrict people from moving around. More than 1,200 cases of coronavirus have been confirmed since an outbreak started in the city last month. This is a clip from George Goodwin, is an American teacher living in Wuhan, and he told Sky News that he's actually relieved to have a supply of food, but does worry about other essentials running out. I personally bought enough, uh, like I said, the last four or five days, uh, anticipating that the stores would be able to resupply. Um, but the problem was that there's no transportation in the city right now other than private vehicles. So getting to a store may be a bit of a challenge. So at this point, most provinces and cities in China declaring a level one public health alert, and that is the highest emergency level as they deal with the coronavirus. So, well, let's bring in Jordan Tustin, field epidemiologist and assistant professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hi, thanks for having me today. Uh, should we be concerned about the coronavirus potentially arriving in Canada? Um, I think that uh, at this point, uh, the risk uh, to Canada is, I would say, low to moderate. Um, I don't think that um, we should be concerned, but I do believe that we will potentially see cases arriving in Canada Um, And I don't think that should be a concern either. I think that as 
we are prepared and the world is prepared and we are able to detect and identify cases, um, we will see cases increase globally um, and also potentially identify cases in Canada as well. Uh, Do the measures, do you think, taken in China now as far as banning the use of vehicles, really trying to restrict people from moving around, will that stop the spread? Well, I mean, these types of measures, so travel restrictions and quarantines and uh, school closures, business closures and uh, closing mass gatherings, for example, um, are standard control measures that have been used throughout history for various uh, epidemics and diseases. The success of these types of control measures does depend a lot uh, on on several factors. It depends on the disease itself, um, how it's transmitted, uh, what is known, what is not known about the disease, uh, the symptoms, the severity, and also the timeliness of these measures and the adherence of the population to the control measures that are being imposed. At this point, I think we're hearing that at least 41 people have died, more than 1,400 infected since it was first discovered in Wuhan in China. Uh, Are those numbers alarming that we're already at to 41 deaths? Well, in terms of uh, an epidemic occurring in China, I mean, we can be very clear that there is an epidemic, there, there is an emergency happening in parts of China. Um, When we put this into perspective and we look at the population numbers and compare it to other diseases, if we just take seasonal flu, for example, where we would have a lot of complications, hospitalizations, deaths, and many cases that are happening within a population. So I guess my answer is, I mean, we do have an epidemic happening in China, um, and we do have to be concerned. Uh, It is a novel virus. Uh, However, uh, the numbers will be increasing as more cases are detected and, and as surveillance is, is detecting cases and we have diagnostic tools as well to confirm the cases. And what exactly is the virus? Because I think that's what caught people or, or when it first became news that it had jumped. So not only from animal to animal, but had gone from animal to human. Uh, people, I think, were a bit more alarmed by that. So what exactly are we dealing with? I mean, coronaviruses, we, we are aware of coronaviruses. Um, they, they mostly infect animals and not humans, and they're very common among different species of animals. However, these viruses, rarely, they can evolve and they can infect humans and then potentially spread between humans. And, you know, our most recent examples of that are with SARS coronavirus and MERS coronavirus, where we can see more severe infections uh, in humans. Um, at this point, there still needs to be more information. More information needs to be gathered about the mode of transmission, about this particular virus. However, what we know right now is it seems that we, we do have evidence of human-to-human transmission occurring through droplets. So droplets is when somebody coughs or sneezes, uh, and then you can uh, become contaminated with those droplets. Uh, but also close personal contact and fomites, which is objects. Uh, somebody, a cough or a sneeze that might be contaminated, an object uh, with that droplet. Um, and this was similar to uh, SARS and also MERS-CoV and, and how this can be transmitted. And you mentioned SARS, and that certainly has been brought up. Did we learn enough from SARS or do we make progress in fighting SARS that is now being used in this outbreak of coronavirus? Definitely. And SARS was in 2003. 
And there was many, many lessons learned, not just from SARS in 2003, but also with the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Um, I think um, post-SARS and post-H1N1, a lot of different things have been put in place globally and within Canada in terms of uh, having a better response, having a better surveillance system. Um, Also, the international health regulations were revised post-SARS. Um, and were put into place and used during H1N1 to have this better coordinated international response when we're dealing with these types of diseases that can cross international borders and potentially cause an international threat. Uh, and you mentioned, too, the uh, the droplets or how it's it can be spread human to human. And I think people are seeing an increase in people wearing face masks. Do those actually provide any protection? Well, masks, it does depend on the disease and how it's transmitted. Um, And yes, they can provide protection uh, against droplets. Um, And I think it's very important that if obviously within our healthcare settings that masks are available and and protective equipment is being utilized by people who are treating cases or who have close personal contact uh, with patients. Um, However, I do feel that you know, in terms of the general public wearing masks, this can cause a false sense of security as well. Um, and when we're dealing with something like this, where it's uh, transmission is droplets and um, a lot of diseases that we're familiar with, such as the flu, uh, transmission is, is due to droplets. And really, we should be using those standard recommendations to decrease exposure, uh, such as we do with the flu, hand hygiene, hand washing, Uh, safe food handling practices, avoiding close contact with anyone uh, showing signs of respiratory illness, Um, if you're coughing and sneezing, to to do that safely uh, within your elbow. Um, Those types of standard precautions are are what should be utilized at this point. Uh, Because you made a a good point that the flu is probably, if you're you're sitting at home listening to this right now, the flu is probably a much bigger threat to you than a coronavirus. And it's the same kind of method of defense, like you said, hand washing and just making sure you're doing everything you can to stay healthy. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, as I said, uh, we do also need to put this into perspective. and And I think we are in cold and flu season right now within Canada. Um, and we can get uh, some people immunocompromised, elderly, for example. Um, children can have severe complications from different cold and flu viruses. Um, and so we need to be uh, vigilant, not just with worrying about the coronavirus, uh, but with flu and cold viruses and practicing those standard precautions. And um, the threat to Canadians right now is with our cold and flu season. All right. Well, very good advice uh, to keep that in mind and to keep perspective on that. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Jordan. Great to have you on the show and uh, bringing us this information. Thank you again so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.